It is so good to be joining you guys this weekend, um, even under crazy circumstances. Um, in a way, I have a real sense of anticipation for what God wants to do, uh, both today as I preach, but just in this season of our lives. I was thinking about it this morning and just praying for this meeting. And I was just thinking, there's never been an unusual context in human history where God has not shown up in unusual ways. And what the world's narrative of our current situation would be and what the enemy's desire for the narrative would be that hope is lost, that things are getting worse, that Corona is something that we can't get past um, and has us in lockdown. And I have such a sense of God wanting to bring such peace to our hearts, even now, even before I begin preaching, that he is not in lockdown, that he is not retreating because of Corona. God has not met his match in Corona. It's not like somehow this is an enemy that he didn't foresee or a context that he didn't know about. But this is a, a moment in human history where it's unusual for us and God is going to show up in unusual ways. And so I really want to invite you to raise your sense of expectation and anticipation for what God is going to be doing in these days. Raise your sense of uh, awareness of what the Spirit is saying and where the Spirit is leading, not just about the pandemic, but about your destiny, about the destiny of your family, about the destiny of your neighbors. Because I believe if we tune in to what heaven is speaking in these days, we will hear incredible destiny words that empower many for the season to come and so I just want to really encourage you with that. I wanted to share a message with you this morning called an impossible life. Uh, we're living in impossible circumstances and I believe God wants to speak into them and I'm going to read a couple of passages from the gospel of Mark and then we're going to jump right in. I'm going to uh, just dig up some things from these passages. So the first one, I'm going to read Mark 1, 16 to 20 and then the second passage will be in Mark 6 from verse 30. So here we go. As he, Jesus, was going along by the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, follow me and I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. Going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. And then Mark 6, the apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest a while. I love that, that the intention of Jesus, even in desolate places, is to bring us rest. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them, because they were like sheep without a shepherd. 
That's such an important moment in the story that everything that follows, the crazy miracle that follows is rooted in the compassion of Jesus. Uh, throughout the gospels, you see that when Jesus works in incredible miracles, when he heals the sick and when he restores people to life, he's moved by compassion. And just before we get into the main part of the preach, I, I really want to encourage us as people to be moved by compassion, to be seeking miracles in our lives and in the lives of those around us, not because we're hungry for more power or hungry for another testimony to share with our friends, but rather we allow God to so deeply imprint his love in our hearts so that we'd be moved by compassion whenever we see the broken, that we'd be praying for the sick, not because we think miracles are cool, but because we're so moved by the compassion of God for the broken. That's what motivated Jesus wherever he went. And so he was moved by compassion and he began to teach them many things. And when he grew late, his disciples came to him and said, this is a desolate place and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages, buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, you give them something to eat. Notice this, don't raise an issue to Jesus unless you're willing to be the solution. That's just <laughs> 101 basics in Christianity. So often you see people coming to Jesus with the problem and he flips it round to them and invites them into being part of the solution. And uh, so often we can be people who just wanna complain about problems and our prayers can sometimes be a long list of complaints before God. But if we tune in to hear him, often God is flipping those things back to us and inviting us into the journey of being part of the solution for those things. Jesus says to them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? And he said to them, how many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds, by fifties, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, broke the loaves, gave them to the disciples to set before the people, and he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up 12 baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were 5,000 men. Okay, the first thing I wanna draw out of these is that God is setting us up in the ordinary. Here we have in these two stories, uh, the first one, the disciples' ordinary day of work. They're just uh, mending their nets, they're at their boats. It's something that they've done hundreds of times over. It's their ordinary routine. And then in the second story, the disciples have actually just come back from an incredibly successful ministry trip. You would think that that would be the pinnacle moment where God would meet with them. And of course, they come back full of stories because God has done incredible miracles through them. And yet one of the most profound miracles happens off the back of the ministry trip, after the ministry moment is over once they're tired and hungry and are just looking forward to downtime. God is wanting to interrupt us in our everyday ordinary moments. 
You know, the biggest moments of destiny unfolding in our lives are not going to be at the big conferences necessarily. They're not necessarily going to be on your weekend meetings. They're not necessarily going to be in uh, prophetic times where the local prophet is in town. They're, they're not necessarily going to be in high points of the Christian calendar. Um, because when you read the Bible, you see again and again and again that God actually loves to invade uh, the normal, ordinary, everyday moments of his people and radically change their destiny in those moments. If the disciples had the mindset that the synagogue was where God would meet with them, that the synagogue was the only place God would speak to them, they would have totally missed the destiny moment where Jesus rocked up uh, that day on the beach and spoke to them as they were at work, their normal paying jobs. If the disciples had had the mindset that even with life with Jesus, that it was the ministry moments, the moments where he sent them out specifically, there were the only moments where God would work, they would have missed the invitation to be part of one of the most remarkable miracles recorded in the New Testament. For you and I, if we buy into the narrative that God only wants to speak to us specifically when we're surrounded by other Christians or where we're in a meeting, we will miss the still small voice of the Spirit interrupting us every day because he is speaking to us every moment of every day and the words that he speaks are incredibly pivotal to our destiny. Sometimes we pack our schedule so full, our diaries, our calendars are so jam-packed that we have no room for the interruption of the Spirit. And I, I really want to say this clearly, the setting isn't important. It might be a conference or it might be your workplace, but the reality is wherever we are, the important thing is, are you and I open to interruption? Because if we're not open to interruption, then we will consistently miss the voice of God. And even in our context today with Corona, us hiding in our homes and being locked down, the enemy might want to speak to us and say, you know, take your foot off the gas pedal with God. Take your foot off the gas pedal because that's what the church is doing and that's what God must be doing in this season. This is a, a season to just kind of calm down and rest a while and just put your foot on the brake maybe for this season. But the enemy doesn't understand the way God loves to speak, that God loves to speak in moments that would be unexpected, in moments where everyone's thinking nothing's happening right now. God loves to speak into those very moments. I love the story of the disciples on the road to Emmaus. After Jesus has died, has risen again, but the, some of the disciples don't know that yet. And there's these disciples we're told that are walking away from Jerusalem on the road to Emmaus and they are bereft. They're full of grief because Jesus has died and they thought he was the Messiah and they don't know what's happened and why it's happened. And Jesus appears to them and we're told they don't recognize him. And he begins to open up the scriptures for them and they stop to where they were going and they invite Jesus to come and have a meal with them. And we're told that as he breaks the bread, they recognize who he is and instantly he disappears. I love that story because at the end of it, they look at each other and they say, weren't our hearts burning as he spoke to us? And it's such a strange story. Why did Jesus not 
allow them to recognize who he was at the beginning and then at the end let them recognize him just as he disappeared well i believe part of it was that jesus was training them to feel his presence and to recognize his presence outside of looking at his face and recognizing his face he made them understand that their hearts burning within them was a sign of the presence of God amongst them without them being able to see him physically in the way that they had been used to up until that point. And I want to say over us that in this season, we're going to have many our hearts burning moments where God is teaching us in a very different season of humanity, how to recognize his voice and how to hear him and to recognize his interruption in perhaps ways that we would not have recognized before because God is more than able to interrupt our everyday and our unexpected circumstances. The second thing I want to point out is that God is setting us up in the utterly hopeless. In the story of the feeding of the 5,000, Jesus very intentionally, I believe, takes them to a desolate place, to a place that is utterly hopeless in order to uh, work this miracle of incredible abundance. He's teaching them that there is no context that is hopeless. There is no context in the kingdom that is desolate because even in the desolate place, God does such a miracle that there are leftovers. Uh, in the first passage that we read where Jesus chooses his disciples, Jesus chose utterly hopeless disciples. He chose to work with the least likely people ever. If we just uh, think about Jewish custom of the day uh, for a moment together. Um, in ancient Jewish times, in the times of Jesus, the first five books of the Bible, the Torah, were pivotal to everyday life. The Torah dictated what people did, what they ate, uh, how they planted their crops, who they saw, what they touched, what they wore, wore. It really dictated every aspect of their lives. And because of this, uh, going to school and learning the Torah was the epitome of Jewish life. It was something that was so important that every Jewish family sent their sons to learn the Torah. And the way the education system of the day worked is that for Jewish boys at the age of six, they would go to school between the age of six and 10 in their first level of education, they would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Then at the age of 10, those who had excelled would go to the second level of education where between the age of 10 and 14, they would then be instructed to memorize the whole of the Old Testament and to learn uh, other uh, rabbinical teachings. And that would be the curriculum. At the age of 14, those who really were the cream of the crop would apply to local rabbis in order to become their disciples. And they would go through a lengthy interview process. And at the end of that process, the rabbis would choose the very best of the best, those who they were willing to represent themselves because to become a disciple of a rabbi meant that you had been endorsed by that rabbi to become just like them. And so the rabbis would be incredibly careful, obviously, who they would choose, who they would allow to represent them. And those, only the best, only the chosen, only the validated would be allowed to become disciples of rabbis. 
For all other Jewish boys at the age of 10 after the first level or at the age of 14 after the second level, for those who didn't make the cut, they would leave school, they would be the dropouts, those who weren't invited to the next level of education, those who just hadn't made the grade, those who were substandard, those who hadn't made their Jewish mummies really proud, those would be sent off to learn a trade. And so when Jesus goes to find fishermen, tax collectors. He's not just choosing strange people. He's choosing those who were dropouts, those who had failed, those who hadn't made the grade, those who no self-respecting rabbi would choose. And he went and he spoke to them and he called them to himself. And we've got to understand this, that when Jesus goes to call the disciples, he's not just inviting them into a radical life. He is speaking the most incredible, radical words of affirmation and validation over them. When Jesus went to that beach that day and he says to Peter and he says to the others, come follow me. They recognized that a rabbi was calling them, that a rabbi was saying to them, I believe you are exactly who I want to rep represent me to the world. I believe that you have what it takes. Can you imagine the sense of validation and affirmation in that moment where their whole lives, they thought they hadn't made, made it, that they were substandard. Here is a rabbi saying them to them, you are exactly what I want. You are the one who I'm going to make fishers of men. And so God is setting us up in what seems utterly hopeless, in circumstances that seem like, no, God can't, surely cannot use that. Surely God wouldn't choose to use that. Well, here we have two examples where God very intentionally chooses the desolate as a setting in order to show his goodness. And I believe he's setting us up in our lives for the very same. The third thing that I want to show us is that God is setting us up for a wild or terrifying faith adventure, whichever way you want to see it. I want to be honest with you, faith journeys are often terrifying. I'm sure the disciples would be able to tell us that again and again. Right at the beginning, they meet Jesus one encounter and immediately they leave everything they'd ever known behind. It's radical, it's crazy, and we would be lying if we're saying it's not scary. I want to focus in on the miracle of feeding the 5,000 for a moment. Jesus breaks the bread, he gives thanks for it. Incidentally, gratitude is always a really good context for seeing multiplication in the Bible. He gives thanks for the bread and he passes the bread and the fish to his disciples. Now, let's just put ourselves in the context of the disciples for a moment. You've got thousands of very hungry people who are tired. It's been a long day. They've been in a desolate, hot desert place. And Jesus ups the ante of anticipation by getting all of these people to sit in groups of hundreds and fifties. Uh, he is making people think that Jesus is about to do something. And so can you imagine being one of the disciples where you're aware, hey, hang on, Jesus, we've only got five loaves and two fish. And now you're like grouping everyone together. Now everyone is looking at us like we're about to do something, like we've got a solution. The disciples must have been freaking out. Wait, Jesus, we've got nothing to give. Give, then Jesus gives them the most pitiful amount of food. I mean, imagine dividing up five loaves, two fish between 12 men. He gives each of them what could have been a barely a handful of food. 
and sends them into the crowd. Now, notice the story doesn't say that the multiplication happened when Jesus prayed. We're not told that miraculously a mountain of food appeared behind him and the disciples were running between the mountain of food and the people. That's not what happened. He broke the bread. He gave it to his disciples. Each disciple is holding a pitiful amount of food. Now, if it was you in the story, how much food would you decide to give to the first person? How much food? You'd be looking at your hands, you'd be looking at the first person and surely everything in them was terrified because now people are looking at them with expectation. Well, that's what faith journeys are often like. They're not, sometimes we sanitize them with our Instagram testimonies of what happened at the end of the story. And we're not really taking people with us on the journey of absolute terror as we journey with Jesus in faith. The word faith is a great word when you're thinking of it spiritually. It's a really, really terrifying word when you're thinking of it in any other context, because it means we actively choose to put ourselves in impossible situations, in situations where God, if God doesn't show up, we're in trouble. That's what faith means. It means that you're living in impossibilities. And some of us, we've got so used to living lives that we would say are lives of faith, but actually, whether God shows up or not, we're able to do all the things that we've chosen to do. Well, I'd venture to say those lives are not lives of faith. If you can do everything that you're doing now, whether or not God shows up, then I'm not sure you're living a life of faith because faith operates purely in the realm of the impossible, which then by definition means that if we're living lives of faith consistently, we're choosing to put ourselves into positions where it would be a disaster if God didn't show up. But thankfully for us, God loves to show up in those contexts. But we, we need to be honest about this so that we encourage each other, so that we don't make each other feel like it, you have to be full of confidence the whole time. Because honestly, the faith adventures that I've taken, half the time I'm just scared. But I've heard the voice of Jesus and I trust him enough to push past the scary. And that's what I believe the disciples did that day. They must have been terrified, but they'd been with Jesus enough to know that he wasn't cruel, that he wouldn't send them into a crowd of thousands of hungry people in order to embarrass them, in order to just show them up as people who were fools, in order to prove to everyone that they really were substandard as everyone else had thought. They knew Jesus enough to know that he, that's not his heart. And so that day, I believe, as the disciples walked into the utterly wild adventure of faith. They had that one thing keeping them going, which was the trust in the character of Jesus, that he's good, that he wouldn't be setting me up to fail. And so somehow, as if I do just the simple thing that he's told me to do, everything else will follow. And you know, often in our faith adventures, what he asks us to do is incredibly simple. We, we often try to complicate it because we're trying to find another solution on the other side and we complicate it. But often the faith steps that he's asking us to do are incredibly simple. I want to ask you today, what are the faith steps that he's asked you to take that you're hesitant to take? You might have really good reasons when we apply earthly logic not to do the things that he's asked you to do. 
But I want to say that you know him enough to know that he is good and he is kind. That he doesn't set his people up to fail because somehow he's just mean and he likes to see people fall. That's not the kind of God he is. And so the very simple thing he's asked you to do that seems incredibly impossible, do it. He is good and he is kind and he leads us in places that are impossible so that he can come through for us. And that's the last point that I want to pick up from these stories. God's intentions are over the top. In our unlikely spaces, in our wild adventures of faith, his intentions are completely over the top. In the story of the 5,000, Jesus chooses to multiply so much food that they have 12 baskets of food left over. Why would you do that? What a waste. They're in a desert place. By the time they get home, presumably most of that food will be spoilt anyway. It's a waste. Well, I believe he does it for one of the reasons, to portray to us, to explain to us, to show to us just how lavish and abundant our God is. He's not the God of the just enough. He's the God of the more than enough. In every context of our lives, he is over the top. He is lavish. He is a God who is not ashamed to be over the top. And he's like that with his affection towards us. He wants to pour out his love in a measure that would be embarrassing unless you adopt the childlike posture of the kingdom, whereas a child you're able to lap up all the affection that he's pouring out on you. He wants to be over the top in how he blesses us. He wants to be over the top in how he blesses us financially. I really do believe that, that God is not stingy with financial resources over his people. He wants to be over the top in how he blesses up, uh, blesses us with resources, blesses us with wholeness, blesses us with healing. And sometimes as Christians, we can become like um, S- Scrooges, like we're scrounging around, like we have to be the kind of uh, checking of the levels of goodness that God is dispensing, where we become more religious than we ought, if we're honest, and we try to be more spiritual than God himself and dictate to him how much is reasonable to give and how much is over the top. And no, no, God, you don't want to bless that person in our community. He's just new. You don't want to make him prideful. Don't give him that much blessing. We try to be grudge Jesus his generosity and there's a parable about exactly that in the gospels in the gospel of Matthew where Jesus tells a story of a of a a master who pays all of his workers the workers who started right at the beginning of the day and the workers who started right at the end of the day he pays all of them generously and at the end when the workers who started at the beginning are grumbling they're begrudging the master's generosity he asks them why he says why do you begrudge me my generosity i believe some of us have got so used to just expecting the just enough that in our own lives we're unwilling to allow the generosity of god and we complain whenever we see the generosity of god over others but i want to tell you today We serve a God of abundance. We serve a God of leftovers. We serve a God who chooses 12 men to change the world just because. We serve a God who multiplies food for 5,000 with leftovers just because. And then he does it again for 4,000 just because with leftovers each time. Because he wants to show us and reveal to us the heart of a lavish father. And so 
today in your ordinary everyday moments, whether you're on lockdown in your home or at work, wherever you are, in your unexpected, God wants to interrupt your day with his goodness and his kindness. In the utterly hopeless, he wants to invade with his goodness and his kindness. In the wild, terrifying adventure of faith, he wants to invade with his goodness and kindness. And if we allow him to, he wants to so infiltrate our lives with the over-the-top, abundant generosity of God that it is embarrassing unless we're willing to adopt a posture of childlikeness. God bless you guys today.